Well, we are going to talk about Peter today, and if there's anybody that remembers the upper room with a sense of embarrassment, it certainly is Peter. Peter uh, is famous for many things. His uh, confidence in the upper room, his uh, fleeing from Gethsemane, and his denials in the courtyard are not Peter at his best moment. And I think this is one reason that we all like Peter, is that we can relate to him. Who here doesn't have something in the past that we just shake our heads in embarrassment about and shame? In fact, I got thinking how helpful it would be if I was to share my most shameful and embarrassing thing in my life. Maybe we all could relate to that. Would you like to hear I know you would, and that's why I'm not telling you, okay? <laughs> I am not telling you uh, because I also shake my head and I think, oh, how did I ever say that, do that? The difference with Peter is that his shameful moments are recorded in all four Gospels in the best-selling book in all of human history. There is no avoiding this for Peter. You're going to run into, into, uh, into him in heaven probably and be like, hey, Peter, I want to, well, you know, let's talk about that, uh, that courtyard. And, and he's going to be like, everybody ask me about that. I'm so tired of that. Or some sanctified version of that response in heaven. But if you have ever failed God, Peter's your guy. Which is another way to say he's all our guy because all of us fail in one way or another. So let's begin by talking about who was Peter, and we have people that know a lot about Peter here, and we have new Christians here, and so let's just sort of start from, uh, from zero here. Who was Peter? First of all, his name, okay, his name, Simon Peter, really his given name was Simon, so you say, well, why do we call him Peter? And the answer to that is that when Jesus met Peter, he changed his name. Here's the account in John 1. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now Peter is a form of Petra, and Petra means rock. Now with what we are about to see in the flimsy character of this guy, his name would seem to be a cruel joke. Like renaming a bald guy Harry. And here we have Harry Beamer right here, which doesn't that explain a lot regarding, I mean, certainly Harry was not your given name. It was. Okay, well. That has its own humor in it, doesn't it? Yes. But in truth, Peter is named Rock to inspire Peter and to show him Jesus' intent for Peter after the resurrection, in his season of apostleship, when the church desperately needed him. His vocation, Peter was a fisherman, okay? Peter was a fisherman, and his home, thankfully, was Bethsaida. We have a map here just to give you an idea where he lived. And, you know, if you're a fisherman, you better live by a body of water, and we're so glad that Peter did live by a body of water there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, He was a fisherman. 
His family, we know a little bit about his family, more than most of the uh, disciples. We know that Peter had a family. He had a brother named Andrew. Andrew was actually the one that brought Peter to Jesus. And we also know that Peter was married, uh, which is ironic because there are ancient denominations of the church that do not allow their leaders to be married. And yet, the leader of the early church most certainly was, was married. We know that he had a wife. He, his mother-in-law is, is also mentioned. In fact, Jesus at one point takes care of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And from that we uh, can say that it's always good to be nice to mother-in-laws. And all the mother-in-laws here said, amen. amen. And, and all the son-in-laws, I'm giving you a chance right now, all the son-in-laws said, Good to be good to the mother-in-law, absolutely. And Peter had a mother-in-law. If Peter is known for anything, it is the fact that Peter was uniquely prideful, self-focused, and he had a mouth the size of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, Peter. Many strengths. He was a leader. He was uh, the only disciple that got out of the boat and walked on water. We give him props for that. He was the very first person to confess Jesus as the Son of God, to properly identify him, Matthew 16, 16. And he was close to Jesus because Jesus wanted him close, and that says something as well. But Peter is one of these guys of great contradictions. He had these amazing strengths, but he also had these profound and devastating weaknesses. He was arrogant, he was brash, he was impetuous, he was domineering. There was no bridle on Peter's tongue. He was ever ready to announce his own greatness. And so this meant that Peter, over and over in the Gospels, is that guy in the room who has a knack for saying the awkward thing. You work with somebody like that, you know, you're in a meeting or some setting, and when they open their mouth, you're like, oh boy, here we go. Maybe you're that person in the room, possibly. I don't know. But this was Peter, okay? He had a knack for saying the wrong thing. One, one commentator calls him the apostle with the foot-sized mouth, okay? Let me give you some examples. Which disciple refused to let Jesus wash his feet? Peter. Which disciple rebuked the Son of God? Jesus, or uh, Peter, which disciple decided to say something stupid during Jesus' transfiguration? <laughs> Peter, which disciple threw himself overboard and swam to shore, leaving the other disciples to fend for the nets and fish? Peter, which disciple boldly declared to Jesus and the other disciples that he would be the one out of all of them who would never deny Jesus? Peter. And that last one is the segue now into the moment that we're looking at here. This is, this is bad Peter. This is Darth Peter here in the upper room. It represents his greatest failure and strangely provides Christians with one of our greatest encouragements to see the Apostle Peter go down like this. So we are in John 13. I'm going to begin reading in verse 36. Here we go. Climbing the steps into the upper room, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now the whole rooster crowing thing is, is, is countercultural, obviously, for us here today. Uh, but it was a way in, in, the, in the ancient world of telling time. The rooster crowing. Today, we have all kinds of devices that tell us time to the digital atomic second. You might have uh, on your person, some of you have two or three time devices that can tell you or indicate what time it is. They had none of that. Okay, so when you heard the rooster crowing, you're like, oh, it must be about such and such a time. And this designation is, he's designated a time somewhere between midnight and 3 a.m. That's what, I'm not an expert on roosters, uh, but that's an early rising rooster, in my opinion. I don't know what's wrong with the first century roosters, but they were getting up early, 12 or midnight to 3 o'clock. Jesus says, before this happens, you are going to deny me. Now, in your mind, imagine Peter, okay, the rock, responding to Jesus saying, you're going to deny me within a couple hours here three times. Deny you? Jesus, it's me. We're not talking about Philip or Nathaniel. It's, it's me. It's, it's Peter. It's the rock. I'm not going to do it. Never going to happen. If you think I'm making that up, here's Matthew's account of Peter's response. Matthew 26, 33. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Hear what he's saying there? He's saying, these other people, I can see it. The other disciples, I'm not so surprised. But not me. Not me. I am Peter. And what we hear in this is that bravado, that hubris, that that sort of self-pride, self-exaltation, I will never fall away. Well, we'll see about that, Peter, okay? And now we skip ahead in the story. So just hours later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, here's what happens. Jesus has his time of praying, and, and you may know that story. He is fervently praying, like sweats of blood coming off of his head. He is realizing what is about to happen, and the disciples, as much as they were committed to him, they're sleeping. They keep sleeping. He finally comes to them and says, wake up, wake up. My betrayer is at hand. And here comes Judas. And Judas is leading a band of, of soldiers, a cohort. This is a large group of people. No doubt Jewish leaders, Roman leaders, Roman soldiers. They all arrive there at uh, the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas comes up and kisses Jesus on the cheek. It's dark. All they have is, you know, torches or lanterns. Judas is going to identify which one of these guys is Jesus. Kisses him on the cheek. And what happens is there's a bit of a scrum. All of a sudden there's, there is, uh, there's turmoil. And Peter, being Peter, thinks this is the moment for he, the fisherman, to take on the finest that uh, Rome had to offer. He pulls out the one sword that they have with them, and he slashes, presumably, at a soldier, and the best that he can do is to hit one of the servants 
and to not hit a vital organ at all, but to simply hit him on the ear. And I could just sort of see the Roman soldiers looking in that, sort of snickering at the, look at the fisherman, you know. He was no swordsman. He didn't know what he was doing. But in that moment, he was going to take care of business. Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the home of, of the religious leader Annas, and then Matthew would indicate uh, Caiaphas's house. But here we pick up the story in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's code for John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Okay, I want you to see this in, in, in your mind. It's nighttime. It's late. There they are. Jesus is taken by force to the home of a religious leader. It's a little unclear. Apparently, he first went to Annas' house, ends up at Caiaphas' house. He is going to be interrogated. The leaders, the Jewish leaders, are interrogating him in the house. Two disciples, remember the disciples, they all fled at, at, at when Jesus was arrested. Two of them circle back around, John and Peter, and they follow the whole thing to Caiaphas' house. And apparently John knew somebody on the inside who lets him in, and then he makes arrangements, pulls strings, gets Peter in. And so now he and Peter are, are in the courtyard. Jesus is in the house being interrogated. There's a fire. The servants and the soldiers are all standing around the fire. It's cool at the night. Peter and John are with them. And one of the people at the fire is a servant girl. Look what happens. Denial number one. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. So here we have Peter, no longer the bravado of the upper room. Now Peter is disoriented. Peter is afraid. And he is so afraid that in spite of boasting that he would never deny Jesus, a servant girl, and the word there for girl, by the way, is not like teenage girl. This is like young girl. So you need to hear it this way. Excuse me, sir. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Okay. You like that in the front row? I got a little girl who's liking that part right there. And in spite of the fact that this is a little girl... Peter, afraid, denies. We have Peter operating according to fear. And one of the things that we find is that when we are in fear, little people and little problems seem big to us. Can you relate to that today? Little people and little problems terrify us. Which leads now to denial number two, verse 18, chapter 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now Matthew's account tells us that it was actually Peter's Galilean accent that tipped off the soldiers that maybe he was with the guy who was in Caiaphas' house. 
he talked with that Galilean accent, whatever that was. But it leads to Peter denying that he knows Jesus. Now he is afraid. Now he is paranoid. And you know what Peter is not thinking about right now? Jesus, I'll never deny you. Who is Peter thinking about now? Peter. That's right, Peter. Which leads to denial number three, verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, so embarrassing, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So apparently this third individual had been a part of the group, that the cohort that had gone to Gethsemane. And remember, again, all you have is like fire and lanterns. It's not like here where we've got all these lights and all of that. When it's nighttime, it's dark. And he's, this guy was a part of it and related to Malchus, uh, who Peter had written, uh, cut his ear off. And he looks at Peter, and he's not exactly sure, because it's kind of dark there in Gethsemane at night. He says, but he thinks to himself, that guy looks a lot like the guy that swung the sword that, uh, that cut off the ear of my relative. And so he asks him, he says, hey, wait a second, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Now this is a strong accusation, because for Peter to take up arms against a Roman cohort was to take up arms against Rome. And Peter now realizes, I might be, I might be uh, exposed here. I might be jailed myself. And so here is what, Peter, what happens. Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Now John ends the story there. Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke tells the rest of the story this way. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is masterful storytelling. It's kind of like the split screen sometimes in movies and stories. They'll do the split screen so you can see two things going on at the same time. So here's the split screen. Jesus is in the house. Jesus is facing down the smartest, the harshest, the haters uh, there in, in the house. He is being courageous. He is, he is uh, standing for the truth. There is no fear in Jesus. But Peter, out in the courtyard, a little girl, a few soldiers, a, a relative of a guy, he wilts in front of them. And the contrast here could not be any more tragic. And that contrast is intentional. In fact, it brings up the question, why do all the Gospels tell the story of Peter and his denials? Because we don't need this story in order to have a Savior dying on the cross. We don't need this story to have a Gospel and a Christology and and all the things that we sing about, trust in, and believe in. We don't need Peter denying Jesus to go to heaven. So why do all of them include the story here? And I think that there are two primary reasons that we find all of these in the Gospels. And the first one is that Peter pictures us. Peter pictures humanity, 
our weaknesses, our frailty, our fears, and highlights the strength and the courage of Jesus Christ. And I want to draw that picture here for you in order for us to see who we are and to have another reason to admire Jesus, okay? So let's draw a comparison between Jesus and Peter. Peter is in the courtyard. Jesus is in the house. Peter has said, I will die for you. Jesus has said, I will die for you. In the courtyard, we have Peter in fear. Jesus in the house, absolute courage. In the courtyard, Peter is lying and deceiving. Jesus is speaking the truth. In the courtyard, Peter is betraying Jesus, faithful to the end. And Peter is a failure, but Jesus a success. And the point of this is not for us to look at that and go, I want to be Jesus in the story. And if you leave here thinking that's what I'm saying, you've missed my point. Because in reality, we are rarely Jesus, and we are all the time Peter. In fact, to say it this way, if he is first Peter, we're all second Peters. Now, did you see what I did there? Some of you New Testament scholars, I hope, picked up on that. If he's first Peter, we're all second Peters. And the realization of that should cause a faithful Christian to look at the, at the comparison between Peter and Jesus and to have yet another reason to admire Jesus Christ. So faithful, so true, not afraid, obeying his heavenly Father. Or to say it this way, Peter makes Jesus look good. And we worship Jesus for it. Uh, I may go over because I just had a thought. Not in the notes. But can I share a, a random thought? I've been to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. That is an unbelievable building. It is massive. It is, you think, oh, they built this thing. No, you know, no cranes, no motors, no. It just boggles the mind. And it is an entire complex devoted to the glory of St. Peter. And you might think this sermon doesn't seem that relevant until you watch the, uh, you know, the broadcast from St. Peter's Basilica and see the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who in one sense are trusting in St. Peter. And to realize that that movement around the world is putting the glory on the wrong person. We want to be the church that sees the glory in the house and the glory in the person, Jesus. Not Peter, not John, not Andrew, not Nathaniel, not these guys, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And that building is an example of getting it wrong, okay? And we want to get it right. And you leaving here admiring Jesus is us getting it right, okay? Now, at Crown Point, they might have amen that point right there. I don't know. Jared, are they slacking off here under your leadership? Now, you don't have to say amen, but yes, something like that. Yes. 
All right, all right, okay. <laughs> and this is the danger that we, that we have when we read these stories, is that we tend to miss the fact, the emphasis, and why it's there. Again, we don't need Peter's story to, to have a gospel. But it highlights the weakness of humanity. We tend to read ourselves as the hero into the story. So, for example, after 9-11, the actor Mark Wahlberg, he said, if I was on one of those planes, it would have ended up different. Now, he apologized for that that later, but that's kind of how we are, isn't it? We kind of imagine that we're the hero. We're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm David in the story or whatever. And we read this story, and it's so easy to miss The fact that the Peter story is there for us to see ourselves like Peter and to have a reason to glorify Jesus Christ. Why are we this way? Why are we flaky like Peter, as our church doctrinal statement says it? We are sinners by choice and by nature. But praise God that as we flake out in life, there is one in the house who is faithful and true. That as our fears dominate us and as we fail over and over again, there is one who never fails. That even in the cauldron that he went through that night, he was faithful to the end. His name is Jesus Christ. So Peter is in the story to draw our attention, our worship, and our affection to Jesus, and I hope that that point has come clear and has drawn your heart a little bit here today. The second thing I want to ask then is, well, why is this in the story? And in this week, we see why God takes us through similar experiences, similar courtyard experiences as Peter went through. A reminder, what did Peter say in the upper room? I will never deny you. And we see in this Peter's heart issues. Peter is impressed with himself. He is impressed with his own level of devotion. He compares himself to the others. And in Peter's mind, he's the one who's laying his life down. He's the martyr. He's the savior. As D.A. Carson points out, tragically, the boast that he would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, displays not only gross ignorance of human weakness, but a certain haughty independence that is the seed of the denial itself. So the problem with Peter was not the courtyard or the little girl or the soldiers or the relative. The problem with Peter was his heart. And this is what Jesus knew in the upper room. This is why he identified, you're gonna deny me three times. Jesus knew that for Peter to become Peter, for Peter to become the leader of the church, that he was going to have to take Peter through the courtyard of humility. He was going to have to expose Peter and the issues of his heart for him to become the leader that the church needed, indeed for him to become the rock. Peter needed to see himself as Jesus saw him. And that is why the main plot is Jesus, his, his uh, arrest, 
his flogging, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. That is the main. But you have this subplot of Peter at the same time. And the reason it's in there is to show us what we also desperately need in our lives. We must get over ourselves. I think it was D.A. Uh, Carson, uh, D.L. Moody, another guy with a D initial name, who said, it is doubtful that God can use a man until he has broken him. And as you think about the challenges in your life, maybe the ones that you brought into the room here today, and you think, God, why is this in my life? Why am I going through this cauldron of humility? Why do you have this happening? We see a purpose in Peter's courtyard of humility. It was for Peter to become Peter. And God never wastes these kinds of refining experiences in our life. And the challenge we have in the midst of them is to realize that God has a purpose in it. Can you look at the thing in your life that truly is humbling you, that you think about and you think, why, you know, why, why is somebody like me having to deal with something like this? Can you look at that and see that God has a good purpose in it? In fact, one of the things when I'm on my A game, and I'm not always on my A game, but when I'm on my A game and I'm going through a trial, when I can look at that trial and in spite of the pain of it to say to myself, this is good for me. This is good for me. This is helping Steve get over Steve. This is helping me to die to myself. And anything that helps me die to me is good for me. May I say that again? Can you embrace this today? Anything that helps me die to me is good for me. I think someday in heaven, if you were to uh, run into Peter, uh, and, and if you were to say to, to him, hey, what was the most significant spiritual moment in your whole life on earth? I believe that he would say, when the rooster crowed. Because that was the moment that Peter was devastated. That was the moment that Peter turned into Peter. Or to say it this way, like lava, Peter had to be turned to liquid for him to become the rock. Now I worked hard on that sentence and I hope you appreciate that. <laughs> Did you follow that? Now, some of you didn't do well in geology, probably, in school, but let me just say it again slowly. Like lava, Peter had to be turned to liquid for him to become the rock. And today, I want to encourage you to look at the courtyard experience that you are going through right now from that perspective. That is not saying evil is good. No evil is good. That's not saying that we pray for troubles in our life. We don't. But they inevitably come in a broken world. And when they come, to look at the story of Peter and to be encouraged 
that in spite of the fact that I blew it and caused this in my life, or somebody wronged me and caused this in my life, or something has happened that has disappointed me, or maybe you're angry or you're hurt or you're afraid, I wonder if you can see how God had deeper purposes for Peter, for why he went through it. And similarly, to look in the mirror and to look at your life and the things that you wish were different and the things that are causing you to pray and say, this is good for me because it helps me die to me. And anything that helps me die to me is good for me. And praise God that we serve a God who can take these discombobulated, painful courtyard of humility moments and turn them into good. Genesis 50, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Romans 8, all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. That includes the things you're going through in your life today and mine as well. And from the painful perspective of our own failures in the courtyard, to look into the house and to see a Savior who is all the more wonderful and all the more beautiful. This is why Peter's story is here. In fact, this same Peter will later write an epistle we call First Peter, and I think he summarizes what he learned when he heard the rooster crow. First Peter 5.5, 5, God, this is Peter himself saying this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there's the final word on the rooster crowing from the rock, the apostle Peter. 